Hello and welcome again to the famous CFC podcast where each episode offers a deep dive into the wonderful history of Chelsea Football Club. My name's Gary Barone and I'm joined as usual by club historian Rick Glanville. How are you doing, Rick? All right, mate. How are you? Not bad at all. Now, Rick, there are always mixed emotions when the final of the World Cup comes about because as exciting as it is, it means the drama and escapism mm. of the month-long football fest is over and life goes back to normality. But twas ever thus. And our job at the famous CFC is to keep the interest going today with a historic look at Chelsea and the World Cup. Mm-hmm. What do we have on offer, Jules or Rime-wise then, Rick? Oof, Gary, a veritable trophy cabinet full of facts and stories, Mucker. Um, obviously, as a club, Chelsea has sent more than 50 players from three different continents to World Cup finals. But beyond the obvious, we're going for some fascinating nuggets connecting Chelsea as a club to the tournament. That's what we'll be looking at today. So expect cricket in Brazil, a World Cup coach who almost managed us, plenty did, a stolen trophy, some memorable memorable disappointments and fully-fledged winners we can be proud of. Sounds absolutely delightful. Now, Rick, the inaugural World Cup was held in Uruguay in 1930. But Chelsea's first association with the tournament is even earlier. How's that about? Well, we start with this inaugural tournament, as you say, in Uruguay in 1930. But um, England weren't there. (laughs) But there's an untold Chelsea tale to tell. Um, Now, the FA, England's football's governing body, had withdrawn from FIFA, the international body that runs the World Cup, in 1928 over what they called encroaching powers. Basically, their nose was put out of joint. They wanted to run everything. They didn't like bloody foreigners getting involved. Um, And they weren't keen on going all the way to Uruguay for the first World Cup. However, the South American organisers, they were really keen to sort of stress test um, their ongoing preparations for the tournament. So in 1928, a year before the finals, they invited Chelsea as a surrogate England team uh, to play a match against Montevideo Wanderers at the venue for the final. Uh, We won 2-0. That's not really that relevant, but it was an important visit, uh, not only because it was part of a a tiny part of an epic um, groundbreaking 44-day tour we did of Argentina, Uruguay and Brazil after the 1928-29 season, but for other purposes that I'll come to in a minute. Now, just to give you some background, um, I'm not going to go too much into it because I think... Um, you know, we might come back to it anyway. Um, so Chelsea travelled over to South America on the steamship Asturias, uh, which brilliantly later acted as the Titanic's body double in the 1958 disaster movie about the sink and the iceberg and all that. Uh, the tour was an amazing experience for Chelsea's players, a new continent that I hadn't been to before. Um, they played the bulk of the of their games uh, in this 44-day trip in Argentina, and they introduced shirt numbers to the continent. So um, they were instantly dubbed, you know, wearing numbers on the backs of their shirts. They instantly dubbed Los Numerados by the Argentinians. Um, We also, there's a club played under floodlights for the first time. Uh, That was in Rio de Janeiro. And we became the first professional English club to play in Sao Paulo. 
uh, play and the names that we played there, fantastic. It's like Racing, Independiente, San Paolo, Corinthians, River Plate, Peñarol, and as I mentioned, Montevideo Wanderers. Um, but there, there was a sort of ulterior motive to us going there. Um, and this was not just at the invitation of uh, Uruguayan organisers, but we had a kind of double agent in the Chelsea camp too, and that was club director Charles Crisp, um, who was on the board, and he kept a journal of the highs and lows of the trip. And um, afterwards, he, he kind of spilt the beans to the FA, uh, documented his findings to them, and they, of course, latched onto all of the problems, even dangers that Chelsea encountered, and decided, oh, yes, oh, we're all right all the time to avoid the uh, Uruguay World Cup invitation when it eventually arrived. OK, Rick, it's an obvious question, but what sort of problems did he write about? Uh, well, it's sort of typical of the day. Um, his negatives included, uh, quote, non-observance of the laws of the game. Basically, they played it differently and cheated, according to him. Uh, they used a smaller and harder football, which is true. I think they even had different types of of um, goalposts to uh, European football. Atrocious refereeing, he reckoned, crisp, and badly controlled crowds. And the Latin temperament, that old uh, classic, uh, which hindered real football. So basically the sort of stereotypical stuff that we've been talking about ever since. Admittedly, uh, one Chelsea player was punched by a spectator who came onto the pitch and actually really hurt. I don't, I'm not sure it broke his draw, but, draw, but it uh, did harm him. And um, and crowd trouble at the Boca ground in Buenos Aires um, ended, brought the match to a premature conclusion and led to severe damage to the Chelsea team Sharabank. Oh. Anyway, so... It sounds a little bit like the typical away trip to Anfield, really, doesn't it? <laughs> no, I'm joking, I'm joking. Don't mean that. Now, we're going to look at the 1929 South American tour in depth in a future episode because yeah. it is a remarkable story in itself. Yeah. But we, but can't we boast an even earlier international football connection? We can, in not actually the, the World Cup, but um, let me just talk you through it because... Um, it's about our long-serving amateur footballer, Nils Middlebow, who was with us from 1913 to 1922. And he became English football's first overseas superstar. He was a, like a really a tall, rampaging midfielder. There's a, some actual some footage from about 1917, I think, of him uh, leading the team out uh, against Arsenal. And you can see the kind of figure he is. Think peak Nemanja Matic kind of really galloping stride across the centre of the pitch. And he was nicknamed the Great Dane, uh, Nils Middlebow. And the relevance is he competed for Denmark in the 1908 Olympic Games held in London. And that football competition, part of broader sports, obviously, um, was effectively a World Cup, albeit for amateurs only. And Nils Middlebow netted in the opening game against France thus becoming the first ever Olympic goal scorer. Um, the Danes also finished as silver medalists, uh, well, they finished the silver medalists in, behind Great Britain uh, in 1908, and they did the same, both teams did the same, in Stockholm in 1912. And this is where Chelsea come in, because Team GB's captain in 1912 was our excellent centre-forward Vivian Woodward, known as Jack, and um, he'd already struck up a friendship with Nils Middlebow that prompted the Danes um, switched to London. 
And um, as I said, he became English football's first uh, foreign superstar and uh, is always... uh, Older people, when I first did writing about Chelsea, who'd remembered him, thought he was an absolutely brilliant footballer. Um, He used to completely dominate the centre of the pitch. And um, I made contact with Nils Middlebow's family many years ago. And when we met Copenhagen... um, KB, which was his old team in Denmark, in the Champions League recently, uh, the family donated the match ball that was presented to Niels when he was made captain on his debut in 1913. And that's now on display at the Chelsea Museum. It's amazing to see. It was in a cupboard. It's still got air in it. Amazing. And final thing, um, Niels's great-great-grandson, Mads Middlebow Buddha, He's also a promising young footballer and he's captain of Denmark's under 17. So who knows? Who knows? Are you listening, Todd Bowley? Amazing. Now, Rick, let's sweep forward to 1950. Yeah. And Chelsea skipper Roy Bentley's experience at the World Cup that year in Brazil. This was actually England's first ever appearance in a tournament. England soccer selectors smile again. The white shirts are back in form. Against Belgium at Brussels, every man from goalie Bert Williams forward earns a star label. One more to come, and man of the match Finney is again the goalmaker. Finney to Mullen, on to Bentley, and it's there. A goal in the old England manner. After a win like this, the road to Rio looks brighter again. Well, having rejoined FIFA in 1946, uh, England were one of 13 entrants. Yes, 13, a baker's dozen. Um, for that 1950 tournament. It's broken into group, two groups of four teams, including England's, one of three and one of two. I mean, really strange setup. And the winner of each group progressed to a further group of four and the, finishing, uh, the team finishing top would claim the title, meaning there was no actual final. I mean, Christ. Okay, so far, so weird. Did it get any stranger? Well, how about if I told you that uh, about the England football team playing a cricket match in the birthplace of Samba? In, because that's where it was held in, in Brazil in 1950. Um, England won their first group game 2-0 and uh, then travelled hundreds of miles uh, in burning heat and to a high-altitude training camp among this sort of idyllic scenery around um, a place called Moro Velho, Old Hill, that means, which really is fundamentally a tight, self-contained mining town hugged by mountains with... Um, from the England perspective, food produced for their palates, and it had a hospital, church, cinema, and even a Freemason's lodge if they needed it. Um, a little piece of England in rural miniaturish. Um, but it, this is like a gold mining community with mostly migrant workers from North, East and Southwest England. So Roy Bentley felt very much at home there. And the training pitch that uh, the England worked on doubled as a cricket square so the inevitable happened a game of cricket between Bentley and the boys and the locals of uh, Moro Vigno. Now Rick you said they won the first game which was actually against Chile at the Maracanã. Yeah. But to say the second game against novice USA team didn't go quite so well would be something of an understatement. Oh my god. Well America were total underdogs and they beat England 1-0 in Belo Horizonte with a deflected goal from a fellow called Go, uh, Joe Gatchens, who was actually a ringer from Haiti, not even a US citizen. Um, but anyway, we, we set that aside. 
uh, because the incredible shock of what befell England was really multiplied by the hubris. You won't believe this that preceded it. Um, I mean, the US had been totally dismissed by English papers. The Daily Express reckoned the only way to avoid a one-sided match was to give the Americans a three-goal start and the Daily Mirror mulled over whether uh, England would score double figures, you know, England being the sort of self-professed best in the world. Um, but when it went wrong, the newspapers inevitably, uh, inevitably took their humiliation out on the players, and especially Chelsea's Roy Bentley, unfortunately. Yeah, well, Bentley was a clever, refined centre-forward in a time of big men up front. Yeah. So I, I guess he was bound to be singled out. Mm. But as we Chelsea fans know, all too well, it's generally the manager who cops it. So who was the manager at the time? Well, actually, it's another Chelsea connection, Walter Winterbottom, who for a long time during World War II had been a guest player and got in, really got his introduction in coaching uh, while he was at Chelsea, he loved his time there. And uh, but but that said, uh, as the manager of the team, he's in the FA's pre- preparations for this jaunt to Brazil were really complacent, and they contributed to the the team's uh, underperformance. Things like the amount of travel involved, the terrible accommodation, the food wasn't up to scratch a lot of places. I mean, these were all all a problem. Yeah, well, they should have had Chelsea do another recce like in 1929, shouldn't they? Anyway, next up after the break, we have the World Cup humiliation of 1966. Humiliation of 66. Yes, you heard right. If you're bored of the U.S. Netflix, why not just take it for a spin in the U.K.? Using NordVPN and a click of a button, you can do just that. No need to travel to Japan for your favorite anime when NordVPN brings it right to you with over 5,000-plus server options. No show is out of your reach. Using my link, nordvpn.com forward slash London is blue, you can receive a huge discount on a two-year plan plus one free month. We all love to binge, but look, privacy is a big deal too. NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. They've also doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. Say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware. Even if you download an infected file, threat protection kicks in and deletes it before it makes a mess of your computer. Don't forget, there's literally no risk when you use our 30-day money-back guarantee. Give it a try, and if you like it, great. If you don't, they'll issue you a refund. You can pretend the entire situation never happened. Check out my link again. That's nordvpn.com forward slash London is blue to get your subscription started today. So Rick, we'll touch on what went right for England around the 1966 World Cup, but what went wrong? Oh yes, so people are accused of negativity, but it is a good story. Most people have heard about when the the Jules Rimet trophy uh, was stolen from a stamp exhibition. I mean, only in England, eh? A stamp exhibition and the, the World Cup trophy gets nicked. And that was in 1966, before the obviously the World Cup finals, and it, how it was found by a dog. Um, but not so many know it happened on the watch of Chelsea chairman Joe Mears, who was an FA director at the time. He was in charge of its security. Ironically, as a raw Marine in World War II, he'd been in charge of Winston Churchill's security. What could have possibly gone wrong? <laughs> yeah, what could go wrong indeed? Now, Rick, I love the story about Pickles the dog discovering the missing trophy under a bush. What happened to him? Pickles 
Well, he actually became a, a proper celebrity and he, he was invited to gala luncheons and speaking engagements or barking engagements, I should say. Um, <laughs> but sadly, just a year later, he suffered the awful death of choking on his lead. Choking on a lead. That sounds a bit spursy, Rick. Oh, poor Pickles. <laughs> Let's go back to Joe Mears' involvement. Yeah, I mean, this is where it gets a bit embarrassing because um, a reward was put up and made public uh, for information leading to the recovery of the trophy. And um, an intermediary, so the people that nicked it, uh, had an intermediary contact Mears at his office at Stamford Bridge. And they kind of entered into negotiations. Then Pickles intervened, obviously. Uh, the trophy was found and the, inst- the investigation closed up. But it later emerged that Mears was still applying for a share of the reward. I mean, oh, it's one of those oh, where no. you just, you know, embarrassing <laughs> for the club. Um, all a little unseemly. Although it has to be said that um, our manager at the time, Tommy Doherty, always said the chairman, Joe Mears, who he was a big admirer of, and who sadly died just a few months later of a heart attack, had earmarked the cash from the reward for a charity. Yeah, it sounds like it wasn't really his money to donate, though, was it? <laughs> really. Anyway, that summer, England were crowned world <laughs> champions for the first and only time with future Chelsea manager Jeff Hurst, the hat-trick hero in the final. But another blue sadly missed out on his fair share of glory. What it did for me was this. Uh, I was one of the few people who believed we would win it for two basic reasons. One, it was in this country. And two, we did have a good side. Uh, and I believed it, and I spread the gospel, uh, if you like. And what I never, ever thought was that we, wouldn't, that we would win it without me being in the side, mm-hmm. that I wouldn't actually be on that field in the final. And it was a tremendous uh, blow to me. Well, that was Jimmy Greaves interviewed in 1982 and still hurting, you know, 16 years on. Um, the story is that he was injured playing in an early game against France in that in the tournament, and he needed six. Uh, sorry, he needed fourteen stitches in a shin wound, and that's where Hurst stepped in, and he took his opportunity brilliantly. And of course, England beat West Germany in the final thanks to his hat trick. Was it over the line? Probably not. We'll come to goal line technology a little bit later, funnily enough. Uh, but it was such a disappointment for Greaves, who was really never quite the same man let alone player again um but also because uh although uh, Greaves he moved to Tottenham by then uh he was arguably the greatest product of our junior system and it would have been lovely lovely to see him set the world cup final alight as a, a former Chelsea junior yeah we did have another former youth trainee and current goalkeeper in the world cup's winning squad Peter Benetti yeah the cat, and- exactly and never say this stuff is just thrown together. During <laughs> Peter's last playing season with the Blues, 78-79, there's another chelsea Mondial connection. Uh, absolutely. Great link. Um, on 1st of October 1978 at the Bridge, Chelsea sensationally came back, oh, you'll remember this one, from 0-3 down to win 4-3. With, Rick, with that ever-fantastic <laughs> own goal by big Sam Allardyce. That's How wonderful was that? I can watch that again and again. So good. Yeah, totally. Always love that moment. But, um, and obviously Clive Walker changing the game. 
as the sub. But watching from the East Stand that day was Yugoslavia's 1974 World Cup finals manager, Milan Miljanic. I don't know if you remember, there was a big story at the time and it, because he had recently been in charge of Real Madrid. And the story was that he was there to weigh up an offer from Chelsea to come in as, to be honest, senior helper uh, to struggling young manager Ken Shelito, who was very popular but was uh, didn't have the experience to to uh, run such a difficult team. Mojanic said he was impressed and he, he said he liked the offer and he liked the stadium and, you know, there he was sitting up in the East End enjoying the, the uh, hospitality and well looked after. But he said the national interest came first. And in fact, yeah, he eventually went back to Yugoslavia, the national team, and took them to the first... He, into the, the he did, they didn't get out of the first group stage, but he represented them, managed them at the 1982 World Cup too. Yeah, I think back then Ken Shellito could have done with a little bit of help, couldn't he? Because we were relegated that season. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> now next up, we're talking about another Chelsea golden boy who arrived a few years later. Here's Hobble. Little chip in and Robson was getting in there again and knocked down and a goal by Robson. Great piece of work by Kerry Dixon. And Brian Robson has put England into the lead. And suddenly England are on the break again. And Butcher is on his way. And Kerry Dixon has got it in. And England are two in the lead. His first goal for England, Kerry Dixon, after 36 in a season for Chelsea. And Kerry Dixon finishes it off. Delighted for Kerry Dixon there. That was a very good goal. Butcher's done great here. The German's beginning to look tired, as I was just saying. He's tried to go around the keeper, and it's fell for Kerry Dixon, who's, who, who must be absolutely delighted to slot that one in. Well, here's Barnes in possession. Getting some support from Reed, and a lovely little ball played by Peter Reed. Urging Barnes to get down that touchline. Find the cross into towards Kerry Dixon! Oh, a beautiful goal! A genuine Dixon goal that Chelsea fans know so well from a pinpoint cross from John Barnes. What a glorious sight for England after Reid had played a lovely ball down the line and there's big Kerry Dixon. England 3-0 in the lead. It was a great header on the far post. Typical Kerry Dixon goal. I'm delighted for him. He's had a great game and it's been a tremendous performance. I was just saying they're taking it easy. This is unbelievable, Brian. What a great way for Kerry Dixon to top off a magnificent season. Kerry Dixon, a marvellous day for you. First full game for England, two goals. You must be feeling great. Over the moon, Ken. Don't know what to say, honestly. Dream come true for me. Um, Butch made a great, done magic for the first goal. Um, just on hand to tap it in, you know, it's just one of them things. Second one, Barnes, is superb down the left. Got up on the far, knock it in. Very well done. Hello, London's Blue listeners. We're going to very quickly jump to a second ad break off that Kerry Dixon audio and then back to Rick and Gary to talk all about it. So that Azteca tournament of summer 1985 is totally forgotten now, apart from me. Probably <laughs> deservedly so. But for Kerry Dixon, it looked like a massive breakthrough ahead of the 86 World Cup in the same country, Mexico. Yeah, he really looked the part, didn't he? Uh, what a specimen he looked and... Found the goal so readily. He was in fantastic form for us. I mean, remember, uh, going into that Azteca tournament, we'd only been in the top flight one season, and he scored an extraordinary 36 goals in all competitions leading into 
um, the following season, 85-86, the one before the World Cup, uh, was slightly less productive for him, frankly. Uh, but even so, he, he, he grabbed 23 goals again. His main problem was suddenly there were eight English players who'd scored more league goals than him, including mm, Gary Lineker on 30. And as a result, Bobby Robson only used him briefly as a sub at the tournament, which was a real crying shame. I think he could have contributed really well. Yeah, I loved watching Kerry. He he, he always gave it. He always chased every yeah, ball. He honest. ran those channels time and time again. He was an honest player. Yeah. And there was a time when he was the best striker in the league. So yeah, he, right. he was a bit unlucky. He just came around at the wrong time, really. Yeah, it was just timing and a couple of injuries and, you know, mm. Managers anyway, let's fast forward again, this time to 1998. What a great bit of business it was when we signed Marcel Desailly just before the World Cup started that year in France. Yeah, just before. Arguably, our best timed uh, recruit ever. I mean, an amazing uh, spot that was to get him and seal that all up before he France went on to win the 1998 final. Um, he played more World Cup matches while with Chelsea than any other player, 10 uh, in the 1998 and 2002 finals. We, I, th- I think that still stands, but um, I think we've got, I'm pretty sure maybe Frank Lampard was close. I think John Terry's one short. Uh, and I think I looked up Cover. I think he's a little way off as well because um, he joined us in 2018 after that, that finals. But uh, that's, uh, you know, he, Marcel, it didn't look quite such a great acquisition when he was sent off <laughs> in the final. But uh, France still won on home soil, of course. And our other France uh, centre-back, Frank Leberth, was in the starting lineup, which was brilliant to see. And we ended up with four of the victorious Bleu playing for us. Leberth had already, had, had already joined in '96. Yeah. And to come were Emmanuel Petit and Didier Deschamps, now France's manager. Exactly. But the next decade was all about Chelsea's great England players like John Terry, Frank Lampard, Ashley Cole and others. Uh, and probably, I mean, I know they called it the golden generation and probably they did deserve, um, well, I don't like that word deserve. It wouldn't have been out of place had they won an, uh, a World Cup, but they didn't. But let's talk about how one of those, Frank Lampard, Helped usher in the technology technology age, the age of technology, that's easier to say, isn't it, in football, by scoring what would have been the equaliser against Germany at the 2010 World Cup. Yeah, I remember that really well. And it was pretty obvious the ball bounced down over the goal line. What a moment that would have been for Frank. But of course, it was ruled out and Germany won 4-1. Yeah, and as a direct result of that, it was a travesty, wasn't it? FIFA immediately resolved to bring in goal line technology, uh, which was used at the next next World Cup, the 2014 World Cup in Brazil. Okay, we're running out of time. So we just run through some of the other Chelsea World Cup nuggets from down the years. Yeah, I've got a few. Uh, Have you got any? I've got, um, well... Four serving Chelsea players have won the World Cup. Bonetti, we heard. Andre Schürrle in Germany in 2014. And, of course, France teammates Oli Giroud and N'Golo Kante in uh, 2018, to add to the others we've already mentioned. And um, former midfielder Didier Deschamps is one of only three players to have won the Men's World Cup as a player in 1998. That was a year before he joined us, of course. But as a coach last time, there was a final. 
Uh, that was 20 years later in 2018. Um, the occasional blues player who's featured in the most World Cup tournaments is Samuel Eto. What a, I loved him as a striker. Mm. Um, he made it to four with Cameroon. And um, Big Phil Scolari, who was Chelsea's coach in 2009, took charge of 21 Brazil games at World Cup finals from 2002 to 2014. That's the third most ever. He also recorded the most successive wins, 11, and most undefeated, 12, which is great. It's a shame it didn't work out for him, really. Um, since records of... <laughs> this is arcane, but I love it. Since records of assists... Uh, were kept at um, World Cup finals. Colombia winger Juan Cuadrado, who played 11 times for us in 2015, never really set the world alight, has the equal third most with five. Um, <laughs> I guess who's ahead of him? Pele and Messi. Pele, Messi, then Cuadrado. <laughs> and finally, I mean, I do this just a little, a lovely little thing here for our. Scottish listeners. In 1966, Chelsea played two friendlies against the West Germany, as it was then, a national team. Um, they'd seen the way we used Brazilian-style overlapping fullbacks like Eddie McCready and Ken Shaletto and thought, hmm, maybe it'll help us prepare to face the South American teams at the World Cup that summer uh, if we have a couple of friendlies against Chelsea. And Chelsea obliged. And who was our manager or what nationality was him? It was Tommy Doherty and, of course, he was Scottish, so he would do anything to unhelp England, wouldn't he? Fantastic. And Rick, I thought it was all over. It is now. You've been listening to the famous CFC podcast with me, Gary Barone, and him, Rick Glanville. If you liked it, please tell your friends and family, rate us and subscribe on whichever app you're using and help us promote Chelsea's heritage. Thanks for stopping by. Up the Chelsea.